We the People is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio projects. Get a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com people. A round of applause and a happy birthday to the 13th Amendment. This Aspen Ideas Festival has been a constitutional feast. We've had a series of phenomenal discussions about the historic and contemporary meaning of the Constitution, but it's impossible to imagine a better place to be right now than right here, because you are about to hear about the history of the 13th Amendment from a master teacher who has, in addition to his extraordinary philanthropy in loaning copies of the 13th Amendment to institutions like the National Constitution Center, also has an ability to talk about it and explain its historic and contemporary relevance like no one else. Uh, before introducing David Rubenstein, I want to say how exciting it is that his family is here, his wife Alice and Ellie, his daughter, and Keenan, her boyfriend, who is active duty Air Force, three tours in Afghanistan defending the US Constitution. A round of applause, please. Mm -hmm. And now it is my great pleasure to turn over the stage to America's greatest patriotic philanthropist, David Rubenstein. Thank you. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, thank you for that overly generous introduction that my mother would have appreciated. Um, I appreciate everybody coming because there is another panel uh, over there on the other, uh, I guess, uh, tent, where I guess it is there, the discussion is whether or not Jews should leave Europe. And um, what they don't know there, those who went there, is that the people who come to this are more likely to get to heaven by virtue of coming to this than going to that one. But okay. So let me give you some background, if I could, before I get right into the 13th Amendment. So let's give you a little history. Um, in the 20th century, clearly in Western society, the worst thing that ever happened was the Holocaust. Six million Jews were killed. Five million others were killed by the Nazis. And that occurred over less than a 10-year period of time. Slavery has been around for thousands of years. In fact, there's evidence that there was slavery uh, in the ancient, ancient Egypt, uh, 8,000 BC, there was evidence of slavery. And throughout most of history, uh, there was slavery in virtually all parts of the world. So it's not unusual that maybe there would have been slavery in the, the Western Hemisphere. And here's how it came about. Um, actually, slavery started in the 1500s in uh, what's now Dominican Republic and in Cuba and in that area, and then migrated down to uh, Latin America and Brazil, and actually in the 1500s as well, Mexico. There were slaves that were brought in from Africa. The United States hadn't even existed then, but there were already slaves in the Western Hemisphere. And they were largely from uh, Africa, and they were brought over, and they, they didn't very live very long, as I'll discuss later. It was a very brutal situation. Slavery itself in the Western Hemisphere lived for about 400 years, from the 1500s really through, through about the 18, um, into the, the mid of the 1800s when it was outlawed by uh, the 13th Amendment. Um, the slavery began in the United States this way. It was, wasn't intended. When the British came over, they didn't actually intend to have slaves. There had been slaves in Britain, but it wasn't something that the people who came over really wanted to have. What they wanted to do was to be free from the constraints in England. And in Jamestown, one of the early settlements, uh, there were no uh, slaves initially. There were indentured servants, all of whom were white, because if you came over from England, very often you didn't have any money. You agreed to come over and pay for your way for two or three years. And, and that was all that, they, that we really had early in the country, indentured servants. 
Then there was a uh, ship of slaves that was heading to, uh, supposed to be heading to Latin America or Central America. It was intercepted by some Dutch traders and they brought it to Jamestown. And it had about 20 um, Africans on it who were supposed to be slaves down in Latin America, but they had been baptized. And uh, the British believed and, and the people in, in Jamestown believed that if you were baptized, you couldn't be a slave. So they took these 20 uh, Africans and made them indentured servants. And they began to realize that indentured servants were helpful to the colonies because they needed to do, they did the work that was very difficult to do and they, they worked for two or three years. But as the indentured servants began to get tired of being an indentured servant for two or three years and their term was up, they would become more or less regular citizens and there was a need for more labor. Ultimately, slavery began from Africa and we began to bring slaves into the United States. And all the colonies had them. Uh, the colonies, uh, they were not just northern and southern colonies, everybody had, had slaves. And in fact, at the time of the Revolutionary War, we had 500,000 slaves in the United States. Interestingly, you might think that we imported enormous numbers of slaves in the United States, and we did, but there were probably 12 million slaves brought over from Africa to the Western Hemisphere during the, the, the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s. 12 million. 645,000 came from uh, came to the United States, only 645,000, quote, only. But most of them went to Latin America and Central America. Now, why would they have so many more there? Well, because the weather was so much more difficult to, to survive that the slaves died very, very frequently, and so they just replenished them by bringing more over. But there were roughly, at the time of the Revolution, 500,000 slaves in every, in every colony. At the Revolutionary War uh, began, and Thomas Jefferson wrote this famous document, the Declaration of Independence, and he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men are created equal. How could he write that, being an owner of about 200 slaves himself, having two slaves with him right in Philadelphia as he wrote that? Well, the truth is, when that document was issued, um, the British never formally responded, but they hired a person to be a kind of a critic of the document, and that person wrote a pamphlet, and he said, among the beginning of his uh, response to the Declaration of Independence, how could Thomas Jefferson, how could the colonies say all men are created equal? They have slaves. So it was clear at that time that slavery was something recognized as not exactly the normal thing and not something that was appropriate. But in fact, one-third of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence were slave owners. One-third who signed it were slave owners. And in fact, our, all of our early presidents were slave owners. Um, John Adams wasn't, but Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner, James Madison, James Monroe, George Washington. In fact, most of the people who became president before Abraham Lincoln had been slave owners. So slavery um, was in the, accepted in the United States. And then uh, what happened really was a, a transformation uh, to make slavery much more important in the South than the North. And what happened was this. In the North, people began increasingly to feel uncomfortable with slavery for moral and ethical reasons, and also economically, they, many people in the North felt that the slaves were doing jobs that white people could do, and therefore, we don't really need these people here, and it wasn't really helpful to their economy. So there was more of an ethical feeling, and some people thought economic feeling. But then what happened was, in 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton, cotton gin, and the cotton gin enabled um, southern growers of cotton to process cotton much more rapidly. And, but they needed a lot of laborers to do that and needed people to pick the cotton in the fields and then process it. But the cotton gin enabled the South to really become uh, a very important economic engine of the country. In fact, we became the biggest exporter in the world of cotton. That was our biggest export. And three quarters of all the cotton that the British used to make uh, cloth and other kinds of things came from the United States. And so actually there was, an, in addition to people coming from Africa 
as slaves to the United States, there was a second migration of slaves from the states like Maryland and Virginia, where cotton wasn't grown, down to the deep south. There was about a million slaves were transported down there. And the situation that the slaves existed in our country was awful. While there weren't gas chambers, uh, many of the, the slaves obviously were punished uh, in, with enormous uh, uh, corporal punishment. They were, in some cases, killed, hung, and families were separated, particularly when the slaves were taken from the northern southern states to the southern southern states. Uh, many of those slaves did not survive. And so you had an incredibly cruel situation. Families were being broken up. And it was something that increasingly people in the North said, we can't tolerate this any longer in our country. William Lloyd Garrison, a, a Boston uh, official, basically led the effort to say, we've got to emancipate the slaves and end slavery. But it didn't get very far. And in fact, uh, we became uh, a situation where we were actually doing more and more to per perpetuate slavery by, in effect, uh, letting cotton become an important export. And by the fact that a lot of the northern states were actually involved in the cotton trade, New York City, which had banned slavery, actually was involved in slave trading and actually was involved in cotton exports. And then what happened was um, the, the, the effort to what we, do, what we should do with expanding uh, slavery into other states. There was an agreement, more or less, that as the northern states were getting out of slavery over a period of time, they ended it around the early 1800s, the southern states were having more and more slaves. They needed more and more slaves. And then when the country was going west, People said, well, should the slaves be allowed in the other states? Well, the, there was a compromise in 1820, which essentially said that Missouri would come into the Union uh, as a slave state. And then Maine would come in as a non-slave state to have balance. But there was a compromise. As part of this Missouri compromise in 1820, it said that no slaves would be allowed north of the 36th longitude, latitude, 36th latitude. No, no slaves could be allowed up north of that. And so that was kind of accepted. And then what happened is some other events went forward. So in, in uh, 1852, um, the uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin book was written, and it inflamed people about what was going on. The Dred Scott decision in 1857 uh, inflamed more people in the North about uh, slavery. And then ultimately, a man was running for president of the United States who wasn't happy with what was going on in some of the other states in the West. There was a big effort underway to uh, allow slavery in Kansas and Nebraska. Remember, under the Missouri Compromise of, 2000, of, of, uh, of, of, 18, of seven, 1820, the Missouri Compromise, no, no slaves were allowed north of really uh, the, southern, the northern border of Missouri. So what happened was, uh, as Kansas and Nebraska were getting ready to become states, there was an effort to let them have slaves and some people in the North didn't want it, people in the South did. The people in the South said, we have to expand slavery or it will die out. The people in the North said, no, we want to make sure slavery ultimately dies. Ultimately, a compromise was agreed to, which essentially undid the Missouri Compromise, and it said in 1854 that what we're going to do is let Kansas and Nebraska uh, citizens decide if they're going to have slavery or not, they could vote on it. So that was undoing the Missouri Compromise. And as that was being debated, and as the Dred Scott decision was coming forward, and Uncle Tom's Cabin book was being debated, uh, many people began to debate whether or not slavery should be allowed in the country or not. And then in the 1860 election, Abraham Lincoln was running for president. And he said consistently in, debate, in debating uh, Stephen Douglas that he didn't think slavery should be outlawed in the existing states, which had been permitted by the Constitution to, 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 uh, to have slavery, but we shouldn't expand it beyond Missouri and beyond what had been agreed to in the Missouri Compromise. So in other words, he didn't think there should be slaves in Kansas or, or in uh, Nebraska or other, other states. And ultimately, when he won the election, he, he won the election. People in the South said, uh-oh, 
Abraham Lincoln is a person who is going to get rid of slavery, not just in the West and not in these new states like Kansas and Nebraska, but in the South. So actually, before he became president of the United States, before he was sworn in, uh, a number of southern states, six of them, succeeded from the Union. And interestingly, when we're talking about the 13th Amendment, it's hard to believe this, but before Lincoln was president, the president was James Buchanan. And because there was so much concern among the southern states that slavery would ultimately be eliminated, they got the Congress, uh, three-quarters of each, uh, uh, two-thirds of each member, of uh, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and the President of the United States Buchanan to agree to legislation which said, or in the Constitutional Amendment that said, slavery is required or not, is not to be undone by the, by the Constitution. In other words, it, it basically said, while slavery wasn't mentioned in the Constitution officially, though slavery was implied in the Constitution because of the three-fifths compromise for, for slaves, um, they basically had a 13th Amendment that was to be ratified by the states, essentially saying that slavery is part of the country's uh, history and part of the Constitution, couldn't be changed. Abraham Lincoln, in his inaugural address, said he thought that we should ratify that amendment. Um, ultimately, obviously, that didn't get ratified. Uh, what happened was Lincoln became president. He spent his time trying to figure out how to hold the Union together. Uh, the war was supposed to last about 90 days. It lasted, as we know, about four years. And uh, about 3% of all the people in the United, of all the uh, adults in the United States were killed in this war. It was an incredible um, carnage. Lincoln was not a person who believed that Africans and whites could live together equally. As a congressman, he had had a position that said, we should get rid of slavery because it's morally not a good thing, but we should do it only if the slave owners agree. It's done gradually. We compensate the slave owners and the slaves are colonized, which means sent to Africa Liberia or sent to Latin America or some other place. That was his position as a member of Congress, and that was his position as President of the United States. He believed, even while he was considering the Emancipation Proclamation, that we should do, we should do things like that. We should, we'd never be able to have blacks and whites live together. Okay, so the war is not going so well, and all of a sudden, uh, we recognize it's not going to be a 90-day war. It's going to go on for years and years and years. And Abraham Lincoln was being pushed by the northern uh, abolitionists who said, you should abolish slavery as president, get rid of the of slavery in the, state, in the southern states and, and abolish it in some way. And he was not an abolitionist. He wasn't in favor of abolishing it. His view was the Constitution said slavery was allowed in the South and in existing colonies, um, so we're not going to change it. And he cons consistently had that view. But it, gradually he began to change, realizing that we weren't going to win the war. The North wasn't going to win the war because the South was aided by the slaves' uh, labor. The Southerners only were about one-third of the population and one-third of the, of the uh, uh, riches and, and, and armaments of the North, but they were doing reasonably well in the war because they had slave labor doing a lot of the menial labor that, that freed up a lot of men to fight in the war. And so gradually, Lincoln came to the position that what we should do is try to free the slaves as a way of getting rid of the slave labor that was helping the Southern war machine. So Lincoln uh, came up on his own with an idea of doing something called the Emancipation Proclamation. And he talked with his cabinet about it uh, in July of uh, July 22nd, 1862, and he basically said, I'm thinking of freeing the slaves. And they said, well, that's an interesting idea, but it'll cause a lot of problems in the North because a lot of people in the North actually, while some people were against slavery, not everybody was in favor of it. Some people in the North were afraid that slaves would come to the North, take away jobs from the whites. And so there was not exactly a unanimity in the North about getting rid of slavery. But Lincoln thought about it, and then ultimately, he decided that what he would do was be, issue an Emancipation Proclamation. And he decided that he would do it in a unique way. He did it as a commander-in-chief. 
He said, I don't have the right to eliminate slavery. It's in the Constitution. But as Commander-in-Chief, I have war powers. And under my war powers, what I'm going to do is say that as Commander-in-Chief, slavery is to be eliminated in anybody that's fighting uh, the North. So he is ultimately issued a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd in 1862. And what it said was essentially slaves that are uh, in the, uh, let's say, the, uh, the states that seceded, they are to be freed uh, within, unless within 100 days of September 22nd, uh, the southern states were to come back into the Union. In other words, he was giving them a 100-day warning. In 100 days, slaves will be freed. Now, um, he didn't do this for the border states. There were four states that, were, that had not seceded, but that had slavery. Maryland, uh, Missouri, uh, Kentucky, and Delaware. So he wasn't going to try to deal with them because they weren't fighting the, the Union. He was only focusing on the southern states and the ones that had seceded. Ultimately, the southern states did not give in and didn't uh, give up in that 100-day period of time. So on January 1, 1863, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He had written it all himself. He didn't have speechwriters. He didn't have uh, other people drafting. It was his idea, and it didn't have any great eloquence to it. Remember, his great four, uh, the great Gettysburg Address was extremely eloquent. But Lincoln was afraid that if he wrote a very eloquent uh, Emancipation Proclamation explaining the reasons, the Supreme Court, led by Roger Taney, the Chief Justice who had issued the Dred Scott decision, would overturn it. So he wanted to have no legal basis for it being overturned. So he wrote it as a very legalistic document. It was heavily criticized, actually, when it was issued because many people said you didn't really free very many slaves. You only freed the slaves that are in the southern states that are controlled by the, the states that secede. Well, none of the slave owners in the South are going to free their slaves voluntarily just because you said so. So the only slaves that were really freed were some slaves in southern states in areas controlled by Union forces, maybe 20 to 50,000 slaves. At the time of the Civil War, there were 4 million slaves in the United States. Although we imported 645,000 slaves, they had, by reproduction, gone to about 4 million. 500,000 were in the four border states, 3.5 million were in the um, southern states. And very few of them were, were freed, about 20 to 50,000 were freed. So it didn't really work right away to free all the slaves through the Emancipation Proclamation. And it was hoped that the, the war uh, machine of the South would be injured, and it was to some extent. And as part of the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln said that slaves who are freed can work and, and can serve in the Northern uh, Union Army, which was a novel thing. Many uh, white soldiers in the North didn't really want to work, uh, fight alongside uh, people who had been slaves, but ultimately uh, that happened, and 2,000, 200,000 slaves ultimately um, uh, worked in, and served in the Union Army, and they were very efficient. Many people at the time didn't think that slaves would be very, very good fighters, but obviously they, they learned differently. So ultimately, um, the war went reasonably well, but it took a long time. We issued this Emancipation Proclamation January 1, 1863. Um, and then, you know, in 1863, there's ups and downs and so forth. In 1864, uh, Lincoln has to run for re-election. He's thinking he's going to lose because the war isn't going very well. In fact, he told his cabinet, I believe that I will lose, and I'd like you to cooperate with uh, my, you know, your successors and make sure there's a smooth transition. Surely who, somebody who wins will be somebody who will do something that I don't want to do. Lincoln was under pressure not to, to necessarily free the slaves by the North, but many people in the North said, just end the fighting, let the South go away. We don't have to, be, have, we don't have, to have a union, let them go, and we'll just, you know, we'll just have our own country, but the North. Lincoln didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep the union together. Um, freeing the slaves was not his main purpose, but he thought in the end that he, if, that if he freed the slaves in the South, ultimately it would weaken the Southern war machine. Okay, so ultimately he's moving forward, and the North is doing reasonably well in the war, and it's clear at some point that we're, the North is going to win. 
So um, the question is, what happens to the southern slaves who have been freed? They weren't really freed that much, but what happens to the slaves after the Emancipation Proclamation has been issued and the war is over? Remember, the Emancipation Proclamation only dealt with uh, the war powers of the president. The president didn't have war powers when the war is over. So there are many different theories about what should be done. Lincoln's theory was simply that each state in the South should vote to eliminate slavery. They would be allowed back into the Union if they eliminated slavery, and if 10% of the voters in the state would, in fact, sign a loyalty oath to the United States. That was his solution. He didn't want to amend the Constitution because he thought the Constitution was pretty sacred. It shouldn't be really amended. Um, and there, hardly been, there hadn't been an amendment for 60 years. The last amendment was in 1804. It was a very uncommon thing to amend the Constitution, and many people didn't think it was realistic that you could get it approved through the Congress and all ratified by the states, particularly if you had to have the southern states ratify it, because you need to have three-quarters of the states ratify it, and if some of the states were southern, they presumably wouldn't ratify it. So there, was many people, there were many people, including Lincoln, who didn't really support a 13th Amendment. They supported legislation. So Lincoln is, to his surprise, reelected. And re-elected overwhelmingly, actually. As soon now, then when he when he ran for re-election, he had not really talked about the Thirteenth Amendment very much. It was in the platform of his party, but he never really talked about it. When the when the when the, when the amendment was introduced in the Congress early on in 1864, he didn't really comment on it. He never actually commented on it. So after the election, he said, "Okay, I now changed my mind. I want to get the I want to get the Thirteenth Amendment approved." Now, what had happened is before the election in April of 1864 the Senate had passed a 13th Amendment. Lincoln never supported it, never commented on it. it the, the, the Senate did it on its own. He was not at that point thinking that supporting a 13th Amendment would help him in his reelection effort, and he just had other concerns he didn't think would really help. So he never actually supported it. After the election, he had a different view. His view was this. The only way to end the war was to convince the South that slavery could never come back. And if the, if the South believed that they could get slavery they would maybe cut some deal, and people would think that they could cut a deal with Lincoln. So Lincoln wanted to be able to say, the Constitution has now spoken. The 13th Amendment is part of the Constitution. It's out of my hands. I can't preserve slavery anymore. So you come back into the Union, but you have to come back understanding there can never be slavery again. So he wanted to take it out of his hands. And uh, so what he did is, you've all seen the movie Lincoln. This is what the movie Lincoln is really about. It's the effort to get the 13th Amendment passed, not in the Senate, because it already passed the Senate in April. It's to get it passed in, in, the, in the House. It had earlier been voted in the House in June of 1864. It had been voted down by 13 votes. And then the, the election occurred, and then ultimately Lincoln changed his mind. But when, they, when it was being voted on in the House and the Senate, Lincoln never actually raised the finger to get it, uh, get it passed. Then after the election in 1864, he changed his mind. He said, I'll get it through the House. I was led by um, a, a member from, the, from Ohio who really led the effort. And um, ultimately, James Ashley, ultimately, uh, they began to round up the votes. Lincoln didn't quite say he would do anything to get it passed, but he gave instructions to his people, see what you can do to get it passed. And there were a lot of discussions about what kind of bribes might have been given to members of Congress, what other kind of things would happen. Well, interestingly, in that Congress, uh, the way the Congress worked then, when you had the elections in November, as they did, Lincoln was elected and members of Congress were elected, um, the next Congress didn't actually meet until the following December. In other words, a December, over almost a year from now. So you had a lame ducks from November to almost a year. Um, and Congress didn't really meet all the time as it does now. So you had a lot of lame ducks. There were about 165 members of the House. 81 of them were lame ducks. And the theory was, with a lot of lame ducks, these are people who don't have to face the election again. They, they're going to be there for a while, but they're lame ducks. They're subject to being um, persuaded, perhaps. 
And so ultimately, all through the kind of persuasive means that members uh, use to persuade others to vote for the thing, um, it did get passed. And it did pass by, um, by about two votes. It had been defeated before by 13 votes, but it passed this time by about two votes. And the reason Lincoln wanted to get it done so quickly, he knew because the Congress was going to be even more Republican uh, when the next Congress came in in about a year, he could get it passed then. He said in his, in his inaugural address in 1864, in his State of the Union address in 1864, the Congress will ultimately pass the 13th Amendment because it's such a Republican Congress. Well, why did he want to get it done right away? Well, one, he had a lot of lame ducks. He knew it would be happening quicker. Um, it, it might take another year for the Congress to meet again and, and to vote on it. But also, he wanted to end the war because he had the view that if he could convince the Southerners that there was never going to be slavery again, and it was part of the Constitution, they would come to the table recognizing that there was no way that they could preserve slavery. Jefferson Davis had always said, I will come back into uh, the Union if we can preserve slavery, or said things like that. If we're not going to be a separate country, we'll come back and negotiate, but we have to maintain slavery. Lincoln didn't want that. So it was passed with great euphoria. Um, Lincoln signed it. And interestingly, Congress then passed a resolution uh, criticizing Lincoln admonishing him for signing it, because presidents have nothing to do with uh, signing uh, uh, constitutional amendments. Two-thirds of, each, of the, each member of the House have to pass it, three-quarters of the states. So after Lincoln um, signed it, then admonished by Congress for doing so, he made a speech on April the 11th, his last speech. And he said he was really happy this had happened. It was a great day for the country. And he made a reference to the fact that maybe um, blacks would be allowed freed slaves to um, vote, not just be freed, if they were educated or had worked in the war on behalf of the North. That apparently so infuriated John Wilkes Booth that four days later he assassinated, John, uh, he assassinated uh, Abraham Lincoln. The amendment was ultimately ratified. People couldn't not ratify it after the death of, of Lincoln, but it took a while. It, it was passed, it passed in Congress in the House in January 31 of 1864. Uh, and it was uh, 1865, and it was passed, ratified finally in, this, in December of 1865. The 13th Amendment outlawed slavery. But the most important point is, while it was historic and a great thing to have done, it didn't really change all that much in some respects. It did free all the slaves, but black codes were then put into the South in the legislation, basically in effect saying that people, while they weren't slaves, blacks were required to have certain constraints in the jobs they could have. They didn't have the real rights that others had. And they really lived in, a, in an awful environment. And that continued for quite some time. The 14th and 15th Amendment were later adopted to kind of have some impact on that. The 14th giving them equal rights and 15th giving uh, freed slaves the, the right to vote. But it still didn't really have the impact. And as we all know, living through the, the Jim Crow laws and the civil rights laws, we still have a situation where we really haven't uh, achieved the kind of perfection that we really should have between races. But in any event, that's how the 13th Amendment came about. Okay? <laughs> Jeff? We the People is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download the books and access them on a bunch of different devices. On iPhones, Android, Kindle, iPod, pretty much any other MP3 player. I've been writing a book about Louis Brandeis, the great Supreme Court Justice, that'll come out next year. And one book I've drawn on is the wonderful biography of Brandeis by Melvin Urofsky. It's called uh, Louis D. Brandeis, A Life, and is available on Audible and well worth checking out. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial today by signing up at www 
audible.com slash people. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash people. begin with the document, because you mentioned that presidents don't have to sign the 13th Amendment. You've generously loaned us this copy of the 13th Amendment signed by Lincoln. It's going to go to the African American History Museum next year in DC when it opens. Tell us about that document. Uh, why did Lincoln sign it, and how many of them are there? Okay. Um, the 13th Amendment um, was signed by the members of Congress uh, as a souvenir kind of thing. They didn't have to sign it, but they did. Uh, the Speaker of the House was Schuyler Colfax. He signed it, and other members signed it. Lincoln decided to sign. He signed about seven or eight of them before Congress issued or passed a resolution saying you're not supposed to do it. That's our job. You have nothing to do with the amendments. So there are seven or eight probably left now. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation is a little bit different. And, and uh, on that one, Lincoln had the original he signed it. And he signed it on January 1, 1863. Um, on January 1, every day in those days, uh, anybody could come to the White House and shake the hand of the president. And so that day, earlier in the day, he had shaken 2,500 hands. And so his hands were like this. And so he was getting ready to sign it, and he went upstairs to sign it, and he was afraid his hands were like shaking. And he was afraid if he signed it with his hands shaking, people would think that he wasn't serious about it, he was nervous about it. So he ultimately calmed his hand down, about an hour or two later, he signed it. Uh, that original copy is in the archives of the United States, and it's shown only one day a year because it's fairly fragile on January 1. But he signed 47 souvenir copies. Uh, of which about maybe 12 or 13 survived. They were sold for an equivalent of the Red Cross to raise money for Union soldiers' medical um, uh, relief. And uh, they were sold for $10 a piece, but only six of them sold. So um, they weren't that popular at the time. And uh, on those, I, I have a few of those, and I've lent them to some place as well. And you've just got another 13th Amendment as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, there was another one that was recently auctioned and, and I bought. It doesn't have Lincoln's signature on it, um, but it, it uh, has the signatures of the members of Congress and Schuyler Colfax. And um, that, there, there are a couple of those floating around as well. Um, it's, it's harder to find 14th and 15th Amendments. But uh, anyway, on the Emancipation Proclamation, I did lend it at one point to the White House. It was in the Oval Office. And I think I lent it to... Um, um, some other organizations as well. Um, so, but ultimately, I will lend it to the African American History and Culture Museum as it, when it opens in September the 22nd of 2016. What did President Obama say about the 13th Amendment? Well, he's a constitutional law about the 13th Amendment. Yeah, when he uh, had it in the Oval Office. Well, no, I had the, the Emancipation. The emancipation. Uh, yeah. He's a constitutional law scholar, so he obviously knew the importance of it. And obviously, being an African American, he was very important to him. Um, but he knew a fair bit about it, but um, he just thought it was appropriate there. And I think it's probably the most significant thing any president ever did with his pen. While the emancipation has been criticized for not really freeing that many slaves, it began the process of the U.S. government saying we have to end slavery. It was not an, uh, an artfully written document. It didn't free that many slaves. Slave owners didn't tell their slaves you're free. But it did ultimately take us to the path of the 13th Amendment. And Lincoln felt that he only had the authority to free people in areas under military control because it was a military order? Well, he felt that um, he was using, he, the Constitution basically, in effect, said slavery's okay because we, we said essentially slaves are going to count as three-fifths of, of whites in the South, and therefore slavery was instilled in the Constitution. He believed you couldn't get rid of the Constitution, so the only way he could think of to, in effect, end slavery legally, in his view, was to um, use his war powers. And the war powers would say um, that anybody that's a slave in a state that seceded um, is now free. Now, again, the slaves who are still controlled by the slave owners, they're not 
running away. Though some of them, when they heard about this, they did leave, and hundreds of thousands did leave, but most of them still stayed where they were. There were three and a half million slaves in the South at that time, and maybe a few hundred thousand escaped after the Emancipation Proclamation. But interestingly, when he did it, he was so careful to be, to be clear that you had to be in a state or an area controlled by the, southern, by, by the Southerners who had seceded, that if you were in New Orleans, which, which the Union then controlled, or you were in West Virginia, which in effect the Union then controlled, or if you were in um, certain parts of, of the South, like Tennessee, that the Union effectively controlled, you were not freed as a slave. Because the theory was, if the Union is controlling Tennessee, and you're in Tennessee, I can't free you under the War Powers Act. So the, the emancipation was criticized by abolitionists, saying you didn't really go very far. All you did was free people that aren't going to be freed anyway, because the slave owners aren't going to really free the people that are under their control. You freed a few people who might be able to escape. So it was criticized, but it still was a big step forward, and it wasn't all that popular in, in all parts of the country. You mentioned the three-fifths clause. Tell us why the framers adopted that uh, shameful compromise. And also, that, wasn't that responsible for the fact that the first presidents were all from the South, from Virginia? Well, um, yes. What happened was, uh, when they were developing the Constitution, and, and the, the, after the, uh, we won the Revolutionary War, we were operating on the Articles of Confederation. They were not working very well at all. So James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, among others, persuaded George Washington to chair, or effect attend, but ultimately became the chair of the Constitutional Convention. And that Constitutional Convention, over a three-and-a-half-month period, three period of time, basically developed the Constitution. And the biggest split was, among other things, um, how to let states be represented in the House of Representatives or the Senate. And ultimately, they came up with a compromise. Every state would get two senators, and then they'd have representational, proportional representation in the House. That was the great compromise that enabled them to come together. James Madison actually, uh, although the father of the Constitution, didn't really think there should be a, a Senate that had equal membership. He thought everybody should be represented if we had a bicameral legislation proportionally. But anyway, they went with this compromise. The southern states would not agree to uh, allow this to happen if their slaves were not to be counted. Because if the slaves weren't counted, they would have very few voters, very few seats in the House of Representatives. So it was compromised, ultimately, that they would get, each slave would count as three-fifths of, of one and giving them more, more representation than they would otherwise have. And um, it was a complicated thing because they had basically said slaves were chattel property, so why would they be counted? Well, that was just a compromise they, that they came up with in order to get the Constitution agreed to by the Constitutional Convention. So my kids, my eight-year-olds, when we went to Mount Vernon, said, well, I don't know if we should go because Washington had slaves. So what should I tell them, and how did the different presidents treat their slaves? Well, in Washington, um, it's hard to say. You look at these great men, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, James Madison, and they were slave owners. It was part of the zeitgeist of the time, if you were a Southerner, to own slaves. And it wasn't considered as immoral as we might consider it, though obviously Jefferson had written about it. He knew it was immoral. Um, Jefferson tried er actually early on to, to get rid of slavery in Virginia, but as he's working up his political career, he realized that was a non-starter. His position, and the reason he would say all men are created equal, and this was Lincoln's position as well. Lincoln was influenced by the statement, all men are created equal. Remember in the Gettysburg Address, he said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth a new continent, new nation uh, conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. He got that from, from Jefferson. What they all meant, what Lincoln meant and what Jefferson meant was humans are equal, they just can't live together as equals. And that was Jefferson's view, and that's why Lincoln favored, even while he was president of the United States, favored colonization. The first time that blacks were ever invited for an official meeting in the White House, 1862, I believe it was, Lincoln tried to persuade black leaders that they should leave the country, that they should 
be colonized and go to Central America or Liberia, and that actually didn't happen. But um, that was that was their that was Lincoln's view. That was the view of Jefferson. George Washington was the only founding father who freed all of his slaves upon his death. Um, now it's interesting. He freed all of his slaves upon his death. How he said, "Upon the death of my wife." Now, how would you like to be George Martha Washington sitting at Mount Vernon, knowing that as soon as you die, those slaves know they're going to be free? So ultimately, she actually did free them much sooner than her death. But actually, Washington was the only founding father who freed his slaves. Um, Jefferson had, I would say, six children with Sally Hemings. And upon his death, he honored an agreement he apparently had with Sally Hemings to free those slaves. They were free, but he didn't free the rest of his slaves. Why not? Um, well, he, was, they were, he considered them part of his um, economics. Slaves had a certain economic value. Jefferson had written about it and saying exactly what slaves were worth in terms of you know, the economic value. And he just thought he needed to leave it for his estate. And so he didn't free them. And how did he reconcile this with his statements in the Declaration of Independence? Well, Jefferson basically you know, thought that it was unrealistic to think whites and blacks could live together as equals. Um, he just thought that, in the end, they would, he favored colonization himself. He had been an early proponent of having the uh, slaves who were freed move to the West and get out of Virginia. But um, ultimately, Lincoln favored actually sending back to Africa or to Central America. It is hard to reconcile. You see these great men, Jefferson, Washington, Jack, Madison, Monroe, they were slave owners. And you know, there's a lot of reports about whether they, they whipped their slaves, whether they were involved in corporate, corporal punishment of them. There were slave owners that were obviously awful people. I say the founding fathers, the evidence is that they were, you know, if you can be more tolerant or better slave owners than some of the worst people. But, but they, you know, there's no evidence that Jefferson actually whipped his slaves or Washington did. But there's evidence that they knew that their slaves were occasionally being whipped by others. So Lincoln had this extraordinary evolution that you described. Did you hear what David said? He, Lincoln actually supported the original 13th Amendment, which would have prevented the uprooting of slavery in the states in which it originally existed. And he moved from that to the Emancipation Proclamation and then to the 13th Amendment. Uh, first of all, uh, what, what precisely did that original 13th Amendment say? It was called the Corwin Amendment. And that was, it, was, it wasn't called the 13th Amendment, well, it was have been the 13th Amendment, it was called the Corwin Amendment. And it basically said that slavery is allowed in the United States and no act by any uh, legislature or Congress could do anything to, to, to end slavery. That's essentially what it said. And, um, you know, Buchanan supported it and Lincoln actually supported it. Uh, because remember, Lincoln never actually thought that slavery should be ended uh, in his early days as a politician. He argued, only argued it shouldn't be extended into the West. He never argued it should be ended, even though morally he thought it was wrong. And he, his father, interestingly, had moved out of Kentucky and moved Lincoln from Kentucky to uh, Illinois, ultimately, Indiana, then Illinois, because his father had witnessed um, what, what had happened to slaves, and he thought it was really an immoral thing. And Lincoln, as, an, as a young man, had seen in New Orleans the harsh treatment of slaves and being whipped and so forth, and it really created a revulsion in him. But as a politician, he recognized if he said that slavery should be eliminated, he probably wouldn't get very far. So Lincoln thinks that slavery shouldn't be extended. Stephen Douglas thinks that every new state or territory should decide for itself whether or not to have slavery. But the Dred Scott decision says that to uh, deprive uh, an existing slave owner of his slave is a denial of the due process of law. 
And Chief Justice Roberts, in his dissenting opinion in the marriage equality cases just last week, cited Dred Scott and Roe v. Wade as an example of illegitimate activism. Tell us a little more about what Taney's reasoning in Dred Scott is and why Roberts was comparing it to well, support for same-sex marriage. Dred Scott was a person who had been a freed slave, and he was living in another state. And uh, the question was whether his slave owner, um, former slave owner, uh, could come back and, and recapture him and move him back to his former state. And um, you know, the theory was that um, slaves were um, chattel, property. It was owned by somebody. And if a state took a, had part of a law that said that freed slaves couldn't be taken out of the state, you were depriving a former slave, a slave owner of getting his property back. So Dred Scott decision, in effect, said that Dred Scott was owned by the slave owner and he could be taken back by the slave owner and wasn't a freed person. And that, you know, obviously upset many people in the country. Uh, Roger Tawney was, I would say, a uh, slave owner himself, and uh, many people in that court were slave owners. And um, the decision also uh, so upset Lincoln that he didn't want to have his Emancipation Proclamation ever reviewed by, by Tawney because he knew that they, he would overturn it. An extraordinary rivalry between Lincoln and Tawney. Lincoln says he won't even respect the Dred Scott decision out of its jurisdiction. And when Tawney, in a later case, says that Lincoln has violated the Constitution by suspending habeas corpus without congressional authorization, he writes his own opinion and prints it on his own authority. Someone gave this to me as a present, a pamphlet of this Merriman decision saying, print it on the authority of the Chief Justice. He's distributing it around Washington because otherwise he thinks no one will pay attention to him. How did Lincoln and Tawney interact after the Dred Scott decision? Well, they had no interaction. Um, you know, it you know, wasn't in, the, in those days, you know, you didn't have social events where the Chief Justice and the President were kind of hanging out at, at the soirees or things like that. But they were uh, people that I, I don't know if they had any contact at all. I don't remember reading about that. But I, I think Lincoln just thought that Tawney was completely a racist and would never do anything that would uh, allow slaves to be freed or to do anything that would uh, emancipate slaves. And that's why he tried to avoid Tawney. So take us through Lincoln's evolution a little bit more. Was there a particular moment when he decided to abolish slavery? Um, nobody knows exactly when Lincoln finally came up with this idea. It's not like somebody um, can say this is the moment, or Lincoln never obviously had a, a chance to write about it. Um, his vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, the, in the first uh, term, said that he was the first one that Lincoln mentioned this to. Many people dispute that because Lincoln basically ignored Hannibal Hamlin in most instances, but Hamlin was a abolitionist and maybe Lincoln told him this, it's possible. There's another uh, possibility that when uh, the Secretary of War, um, Mr. Stanton, his son was killed, died as a young man, uh, Lincoln going to the funeral um, went with Mr. Seward, who was the Secretary of State, and Seward says at that time that he, uh, Lincoln mentioned it to him at that time. Now, where did Lincoln actually write the Emancipation Proclamation? There's some dispute about that. Uh, many people take credit for it. Lincoln spent one-fourth of Lincoln's days as president were spent in the cottage. There was a cottage for, uh, in effect, uh, uh, retired soldiers, and Lincoln kind of took it over as his summer White House, you could say. Uh, it was considered a summer White House because it was you know, elevated by a couple hundred feet. And so it, if, Washington, if, if the White House was 99 degrees, um, it might only be 95 degrees there. And so he spent uh, a lot of his weekends and summers there. Some people thought he wrote it there. But Lincoln actually might have written it in the telegraph office. Lincoln conducted the war this way. He went next door to the war building and very frequently went up on the second floor. And that's where there were telegraphs. And that's how he monitored the war. He would get telegraph, telegrams from his generals, and he would send telegrams back. And um, 
He, up there, it is, he once asked the person running that office, give me some sheets of paper. I have something significant I want to write. So he may have written it there. He may have written it part, of the, in, part in, the, in, the, in the cottage. No one really knows. But uh, it's clear that he wrote it and nobody else wrote it. Tell us about the uh, Gettysburg Address and Lincoln's notion of a new birth of freedom. Gary Wills is here at the festival. He's written this great book about yeah. how Lincoln reconceived the Constitution and by ascribing right. to Jefferson the willingness to extend the values of right. equality, basically recreated it in his own image. Yeah. Do you think, was Lincoln completing Jefferson or transforming his vision? Well, the Gettysburg Address is one of the great speeches of all time. It was an incredible speech, only two minutes. The great speaker that day was supposed to be Edward Edward Everett who was former senator from Massachusetts, governor of Massachusetts, congressman from Massachusetts, ambassador to England, and president of Harvard. He was a famous speaker. And when he gave speeches, they went on for two hours. People stood there and listened for two hours. And uh, when they wanted to have a cemetery built after the uh, Gettysburg uh, battle, because so many thousands of men had been left unburied, really, or buried poorly, um, when, they, when the cemetery was being built, they decided they wanted to have an appropriate person Edward Everett was the greatest speaker. He was invited. As an afterthought, Lincoln was invited. And Lincoln accepted. And, it, and Lincoln uh, wrote this speech out. Some people say at the White House. Some people say on the train. Uh, some people say the night before. In any event, he wrote it out. And after Everett's two-hour speech, Lincoln then gets up and speaks for two minutes. Um, the photographers don't have any uh, pictures of, of Lincoln because it was before they could set up, he had sit, sat down. And he basically said to Edward Everett, I'm sorry I didn't get a very good response to my speech. It was only 272 words. And uh, it was a brilliant speech. I won't go through why it worked so well, but it used some literary devices like antithesis and so forth. But what he did and what Gary Wills says in his book is that Lincoln changed the entire purpose of the war. The war had been uh, started or to the war had been fought by Lincoln to preserve the Union, preserve the Union. That was what it was all about. But Lincoln began with that famous sentence: Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Well, wait a second. A lot of people didn't agree that all men are created equal. So how could he say that? Well, he was referring back four score and seven years ago to the to the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson's language. And so a lot of people wrote articles afterwards saying, Lincoln, what are you talking about? We're not fighting this war because all men are created equal and free the slaves. They're not equal. We're fighting this war to preserve the Union. And so Gary Wills, in his uh, great book, basically makes the point that Lincoln pulled a, pulled a sleight of hand. He was, in effect, saying that we're not fighting the war only to keep the Union together. We're fighting the war to, preserve, to make sure all people are treated equal and, ultimately, that slaves will be free people. And so um, that's how the speech kind of um, I think it was not a speech that um, was considered um, the greatest speech of all time at that time. Uh, it, it was considered an interesting speech. It was well respected, but it was only later, uh, much later, many, many years later, that it became as famous a speech as, as it did become. So it's this constitutional vision that the promise of Jefferson's declaration has to be enshrined uh, in the Constitution, but it takes the 13th Amendment to actually constitutionalize it. Tell us more about the process. First of all, why did it pass by only two votes? Who was voting against it? Well, um, first of all, you know, when major legislation passes in the Congress and it's controversial, sometimes it passes by two votes. Now, why is that? Well, if it passes by one vote, one person could be said to be responsible for it. Some of you may remember that when uh, President Clinton was trying to get, uh, I think, a, a tax a bill through the Congress, and it was passed by one vote, and uh, 
Congresswoman Mezvinsky was considered to be the one vote who had voted against her constituency. She then lost the next election. So generally, when you have these close votes, you want to have at least two votes so one, no one person can be said if you had changed your vote. But what happened was um, that the House of Representatives um, was mostly Republican. But Lincoln wanted to, uh, needed Democrats and he needed border states uh, members to get in because there weren't enough Republicans. You need two-thirds of the people who are voting. Actually, Lincoln, when he was first asked about the 13th Amendment, whether it could be passed, he said, I don't think we can get two-thirds of the members. And somebody said to him, well, you know, you only have to get two-thirds of the people who show up. He said, oh. So they did get some people not to show up. Some members didn't show up. And um, so he got two-thirds of the people who showed up. And he got, he, he got some border state people who were lame ducks. And I think um, 13 of the people who voted for it uh, were lame ducks. So, um, you know... Probably if, and, and after it was passed, um, some of you may have seen the Lincoln movie. Anybody seen the Lincoln movie? The Lincoln movie is interesting, and just to digress for a moment. Um, how that came about was that um, Doris Kearns Goodwin had contracted to write a book on Lincoln. And as soon as she described that she was going to do this to um, Steven Spielberg, he said, I'd like to option the book, which he did. The book wasn't completed for 10 years. So later, when it was completed, he began, he hired a number of script writers to write a script about it. It went through 500-page scripts and so forth. And the book is about Lincoln's life as president, mostly. Ultimately, the, the final script writer decided to focus on what is only five pages of that book, which is the 13th Amendment ratification. And uh, the book, the movie is pretty accurate, uh, except for maybe two things, three things. One, if you recall the movie, they have this, the, the House, the votes are being called by state. Well, actually, uh, members of the House vote alphabetically, not by state. So that was you know, an error, but they knew that they were doing that. They also, um, um, they filmed it, ironically, in the, in the Virginia State House. The capital of the Confederacy was Virginia, and Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. So ironic that they would film this movie, which they, they, they wanted to look like it was the House of Representatives, in the, what was the Confederate State Capitol. But in that, um, as they were filming in there, there's a bust of Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> and that's in the movie. Now, Woodrow Wilson was a great son of Virginia, but he was not alive uh, when, when, that, when that occurred. But actually, it's a pretty accurate thing. And if you remember, there was a, the leading figure in the House was a man who was pushing it forward, uh, well, James Ashley, but one of the, the great liberals in the House was Thaddeus Stevens. And Thaddeus Stevens was the person you may remember at the end who had a, he had a uh, club foot and he wore a wig and, and, and so forth. And um, he later said, um, not just in the movie, but he said it um, in, in real life, that the most important measure of the 19th century was passed by corruption, aided and abetted by the purest man in America. In other words, Lincoln was above corruption. He was incorruptible. But Lincoln probably authorized some of his people to trade some votes and do certain things or have people not show up. And they, they got the, the, the legislation or the, the amendment through by the kind of horse trading that Lincoln had never done before because Lincoln had absolved himself from all legislative kind of matters. He never did what presidents do today, go in and try to pass legislation. Congress did what it did. Only on the 13th Amendment did Lincoln really get involved, and he authorized people to probably do some things that wouldn't look so good on the front page of the Washington Post. Uh, last question for me and then a few from the audience. Lincoln said in 1861, I think, standing in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, I'd rather be assassinated on this spot and abandon the principles of Jefferson's declaration. How, how fervently did he come to embrace Jefferson as his model? Lincoln um, never went past the second grade in education. 
So how could somebody who um, never went past the second grade uh, be so literate and be such a great writer um, and be so knowledgeable about what earlier people, founding fathers had written? Because he read enormously. He just read and read and read, and he idolized Jefferson. He thought that Jefferson was the greatest of the founding fathers and that the principle of all men uh, created equal was the founding principle of the country. And it was in the Declaration of Independence, and that was what uh, Lincoln really believed should be the founding principle going forward. He didn't know how to achieve it early on, but that's what he really believed in. Beautiful. All right, one or, we have just t time for a few questions from our great audience. And I'm a law professor and can call on people, so you don't want to miss this <laughs> great opportunity. Yes, ma'am. Oh. No, I have the mic. You have the mic. Yeah. All right. There's there we there. go. Through there. Two. Perfect. All right. Good afternoon. Um, I'm curious to know um, also a little bit more about who was the group or the person who initially originated the 13th Amendment. Who, who was the person or group for whom the 13th Amendment was? Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. Was intended to, to protect? Um, or who, originated? Oh, who originated it? Oh, yes, who, who, because, who, drafted, um, who yeah. drafted the text? And, okay. Um, oh, good, good question. It was. Um, there was some text that Jefferson had drafted something that became the Northwest Ordinance. It's kind of said in the Northwest Ordinance, in the Northwest Territories, which was Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, there was to be no, no, uh, no slavery there. And, um, and um, they, they took a lot of the language from that. But ultimately, um, it was James Ashley, who was the, the leading member of the House who was really pushing it, uh, with other members kind of drafted the, the text. It was very simple. But the, the problem was uh, this. There were two clauses to it. One says nobody shall be um, a slave. Second is the Congress shall pass legislation that will enforce this. And a lot of people, when the ratification debate was going, when the ratification debate was going on, the states that were debating the ratification saying, what does it mean that Congress can pass legislation to enforce this? Will that mean that they will make these um, freed slaves citizens? Will it mean that they will make them eligible to participate in juries? Will it enable them to make uh, pass legislation to enable them to vote? And so there's a big debate about it. And of course, those who wanted it ratified were saying, no, 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 it, it doesn't mean anything. Just ignore the enforcement thing. It, it's not important. Actually, some of the abolitionists thought that it would enable Congress to do much more than they let on. But, um, so it was a very simple uh, legislation. And, but the enforcement provision of it was something that was heavily debated and was read differently by many different people, depending whether you supported it or you opposed it. Great. Yes, sir. Right up here. Am I right that uh, McClellan was the Democratic uh, presidential candidate in 64, the former general? And why did he pick Johnson as his vice president at 64? Okay. George McClellan was a general who was the principal general of, of the of Union Army for a while. Lincoln was very frustrated with him. As he liked to say, um, you know, I have a lot of generals that have the slows, which is to say they're very slow in pursuing things. Um, in two cases, McClellan probably could have won the war, but he chose not to do so. McClellan was a young man, relatively speaking. I think he was about 37 years old or so when he became a general. He um, basically liked to get his troops organized and so forth, but he, he didn't really like to pursue the enemy that much. And so he was a person who um, you know, probably could have, in the Battle of Antietam, uh, there was a chance to maybe 
get, get Robert E. Lee and end the war, but he, he didn't do that. Um, he was a, uh, probably a person who was not um, necessarily in sync with Lincoln. In fact, when Lincoln went and visited him one time, as uh, Commander-in-Chief came to visit McClellan, kind of asked him, how come you're spending all this time getting organized? You don't actually do anything, you just get organized. Uh, McClellan gave him a letter um, basically saying, you know, let me tell you how you're running the war wrong and why you're not doing a very good job as Commander-in-Chief. Kind of an insulting thing today, you'd get fired for that. And Lincoln just uh, tolerated it. Ultimately, McClellan uh, was relieved uh, as the, the top general, and ultimately he considered running against Lincoln in 1864, but he, he uh, um, and, and, and ultimately, though, he, he didn't have the popular support to really make him a very uh, uh, a, a serious candidate. And Andrew Johnson, why was he picked? Andrew Johnson um, was picked because he was a loyal member of, he had from Tennessee. Tennessee was kind of split, half Union, half Confederacy, but he was a part of the Union that, he stayed part of the Union, so he was loyal to the Union, and it was thought by having somebody from a border state who was a Southerner um, being vice president, it would, it would help the border states uh, stay with the Union and keep convince the border states that, that Lincoln wasn't going to do anything to hurt them. Lincoln was always concerned that the border states um, and Tennessee, uh, states around there where the Union had some control, would ultimately go to the South, and if they did, it would, it would hurt uh, Lincoln's ability to run the war and to get reelected. So it, he was put on the ticket to kind of help with the border states and help convince people that you could be a Southerner and still support Lincoln. Great. We have time for one last question. Yes, sir. How novel was the approach to use the Declaration of Independence as justification for uh, the 13th Amendment or for any right. major legislation or amendment? Well, it's interesting in this respect. The Declaration of Independence is a propaganda document. It has no legal effect. Jefferson wrote it in, in about four days. He was given 17 days to write it. He had, took four days to do it. Um, and it was heavily authored and edited by the Congress, and he was so upset about it, the Continental Congress, that he didn't actually want to admit he was the author of it for many years. Um, but uh, it was only a document that was designed to say to the, the whole country, here is why we are um, going for independence. And it was, as soon as it was agreed to by the Congress on July the 4th, it was... Um, printed up that next day, and 100 or 200 copies were printed, and they were sent out, one to George Washington to read to the troops, one was uh, sent to the, uh, to the British so that the King George would know, and, and one was sent to all the states so they would know what was going on. It was really intended as a propaganda document, more or less. It wasn't really, um, you know, it didn't have any legal effects. So when you think about the important documents in our country, the Declaration of Independence is important, but it isn't um, a, a legal document. And I should say, now that we're approaching July the 4th, tomorrow, uh, and let me just mention why it is that we celebrate July the 4th and not July the 2nd. So when Congress voted, the Continental Congress, to split from England, they did it on July the 2nd. And John Adams, who was the principal proponent of this motion for independence, he then wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail, saying, this will be the day that we will celebrate forever with fireworks and all kinds of celebrations, because today is the most important day in the country's history. We've declared independence. So why do we celebrate the 4th of July, not the 2nd? Well, the Declaration was agreed to on the 4th of July, you could argue. So a year later, when the Declaration was not that significant, it was not, the Declaration didn't become this holy document until many, many years later. So the, July the 2nd was a more important date. When July the 2nd, 1777 came around, the Cong no, Congress was still meeting. And they forgot that it was July the 2nd, and they forgot to celebrate it. 
So they realized that at the end of the day, they said, okay, we got to get organized. They got it organized to do it on the July the 4th. And ultimately, as July the 4th became a more important date, as they celebrate on that date in the future years, John Adams was very upset that the man responsible for the July the 4th declaration, Jefferson, was getting the credit. And he, Adams, was not getting the credit. And they, both of them lived for another 50 years. And as you all know, they, they died on July the 4th within two hours of each other uh, 50 years later after the declaration was signed. So that's why we celebrate the 4th, because they forgot on July the 2nd, 1777. <laughs> David, I always learn so much from these conversations. And what you have taught us today is that when we celebrate July 4th and the founding documents, we need to celebrate not only the first founding, but also the second founding, which includes the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. For all, you, for all David Rubenstein is doing for constitutional education in America, please join me in thanking him. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You.